Get set for a look at the biggest stories of 2022 and what's cooking for 2023 in our Tech Radio Bumper year-end show, starting now. Tech Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Hello there and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast with you every Friday morning with your favourite podcasting app or Friday evenings on RTE Radio. My name is Dusty Rhodes and this is our year-end bumper edition, show number 950. And what a turbulent year it has been for technology as big tech starts cutting jobs across the board. Twitter went private in unusual circumstances. Uh, We have the crypto winter, AI art, an Irish woman going to space and moves to make the West less reliant on Chinese-made chips. And all of this against a backdrop of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. To chat about the stories and the trends that made our year, we have our Tech Central Editor-in-Chief, Niall Kitson, and we're also joined by Fujitsu Distinguished Engineer, Cara O'Carroll. Each of us taking a look back at a story and person of the year, and each of us having different views on the tech industry. This could be fun. So, uh, Niall, I normally defer to you first because you're the boss, but I would like to be a gentleman and go with Cara first, if that's okay. Cara, who is your person of the year? Thank you, Dusty. So, um, and thank you for the opportunity to be on this slot. So, my person of the year is Sandra Healy. She's the CEO and founder of a company called Inclusio. Now, Sandra left about 20 years in the telecoms industry to address an issue she saw with data. And as anyone who's been in touch with me before knows, I'm very data centric and solving problems through data strategies. So, Sandra figured out that when she was in sales, she had lots of clear KPIs for measuring diversity, sorry, for measuring sales. But in diversity and inclusion, there aren't clear KPIs and companies can't really report on them. So she took four years of R&D in Dublin City University and left there with a team of four in 2020. And then the company is growing and growing and growing. They're up to 38 people. They're on track to hit 50 and more. They have signed contracts with organizations globally and been recognized as having something really unique. So, for example, KPMG in Canada looked at 26 platforms to try and see how diversity and inclusion could be managed. And they said, there's nothing like your solution out there in the world. This is really, really incredible. And it's been recognized this year by an award from an organization called Altis, who are a European and further afield telecoms company. So they're recognized as, I'm, I'm going to get the name wrong here, but the Innovation Startup of the Year, which includes a big cash prize for in, for Inclusio and as well as the opportunity to provide them with a proof of concept for their wider business to take on board. So as Sandra would say, they're an organization designed in Ireland, but built for global use. And um, they're just going from strength to strength to strength. So more power to them, delighted for them and can't wait to see where they go next. Okay, now we made a little rule before we uh, started the show that nobody was allowed to pick Elon Musk. So I'm praying, Niall, you haven't picked Elon Musk. I have not picked Elon Musk. And Ooh. I, was, I was kind of going for a little bit of a rogues gallery this year because we had the conclusion of the Theranos case 
uh, and in particular the sentencing of Elizabeth Holmes to I think it was 11 years uh, in prison, uh, primarily for defrauding investors. But you might remember uh, her story from The Dropout, the podcast and TV series, where she had created a machine where from one drop of blood, you could get uh, 200 blood test results from it. Uh, Unfortunately, the technology didn't work, never worked. Uh, and things sort of snowballed from there. However, my person of the year is another uh, individual uh, in dire straits. His name is Sam Bankman-Fried. We've talked about him over the last few weeks, um, sort of a late entrant into my person of the year, uh, who isn't Elon Musk. And basically, this is uh, a gentleman who was a billionaire before he was 30 and whose net worth now is zero. Uh, He was the owner of uh, a cryptocurrency exchange called FTX and also um, the majority share uh, stakeholder in a company called Alameda Research. Uh, FTX, of course, Bitcoin exchange reliant on money coming in from customers. Uh, Alameda Research, a hedge fund that became, um, got used to making very risky and very expensive investments uh, to the point where money was allegedly being used from FTX to prop up Alameda And when people started looking for their money from FTX, they were told, actually, uh, there's no money. Uh, The the money is all gone. Uh, Sorry about that. Uh, And now there are all sorts of legal complications and ramifications coming from it, which we'll talk a little bit uh, about later uh, in terms of the crypto winter. But basically, by the end of the year, we actually had somebody that we could point at and go, that's what the crypto winter looks like. Therefore, my person of the year. Listen, as you said, we're going to talk about uh, more about crypto a little later on. But can I just ask you, this this one man, Sam Bankman-Fried, how much of an effect do you think he's going to have on crypto going forward? I think there's a couple of things happened during the year that really uh, affected crypto's value. But mm. more importantly, it's perception, because people are buying into crypto as a purely speculative asset. Uh, They just pump money into it and assume that in a year's time, they're going to get a massive return from it. It's when things like the collapse of FTX happen that it really shakes confidence in an industry that is still uh, a sector that is still largely unregulated. So if we get to the stage that people don't have confidence in either a particular coin uh, or a particular exchange, that hurts the crypto project as a whole. It's almost the idea of taking, you know, currency, And all of a sudden, people don't believe in it. So the currency becomes devalued. That's exactly what's happening with crypto. Um, That's the impact he's going to have. It's not going to be, you know, a criminal case. This is going to snowball. This is going to ripple outwards to the entire crypto community. And and he'll be the man who started that uh, particular ripple. All right. Okay. You're right, though. It's all about confidence. It'd be like, imagine if our money, our cash and our 50 euro notes didn't have gold behind it. Well, a lot of a lot of money doesn't. Oh, fiat, fiat, it fiat doesn't. Car- <laughs> like, oh no! You mean you mean Nixon got rid of the gold standard? Oh my God! <laughs> Nobody tells me anything. Cara, are you are you a crypto person? I am. I am. I I and I must thank Revolut for making it really easy to buy and MetaMask really complicated to spend. So so for me, I've I've gone the journey of hey, I can buy this stuff. Oh, I can't actually spend it on anything except to sell it back. That's the Revolut journey or MetaMask, I can buy it and I can spend it on NFTs. And that's wonderful, except who do I share the NFTs with? You know, so does they really have any value? And we might get to talk about that some more. And then I was had the Forbes article saying, 
in the summer saying, oh, the crypto winter this time is going to last two years. I think with the latest uh, Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX scandal, we're probably looking at three and we'll, uh, we'll see, you know, so is it a good time to invest in crypto? Yes, if you think the confidence will come back, <laughs> but no, maybe we'll, not. We'll chat more about that. Listen, uh, it's down for, it's, it's very interesting who you've picked for your person of the year, because Carrie, you've picked somebody very inspirational. Niall, you've gone the opposite way. Yeah. Uh, my person of the year, you'll be delighted to hear. Are you ready for it? Go on. Elon Musk. <laughs> I'm, joking. Despite, I'm joking. No, okay. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Totally. Mind you, you might wish that I was joking. Um, I, I was kind of worried, wondering about this, and I said, "Should I have this person as the person of the year?" Uh, and then I kind of went, "Yeah," because if you're defining the person of the year as having the most influence on the year, well, then my man is perfect. All right. His name is Vladimir Putin. Okay. Yeah, I'll accept Understood. that. Stunned silence because nobody said it's the best person of the year and Niall has just proved that. <laughs> right? Um, I think there's nothing good to say about this guy, all right? Um, but I just find it fascinating that one person can have such an amazing effect like on the entire planet. And it's kind of like everybody's going around this year going, oh, I never saw that coming. It's like he annexed the Crimea, Crimea, Crimea what, uh, 10 years ago or thereabouts. They've been heavily involved in Syria. Uh, he was threatening for ages to invade Ukraine. And then all of a sudden in February, he did. And everybody went, oh, my God. And the stock market collapsed and supply chains collapsed. And everything. it was kind of like, you know, as human beings, it's like, how stupid are we? It, it's, it reminds me of another person in the 30s in Germany. We won't mention his name. Uh, but he was doing things and everybody was sitting back going, ah, it'll, it'll be fine, it'll be fine, whatever. And we we, we'll throw sanctions at him and stuff like that, like, you know. But uh, no, Putin has been doing all of those things. He's taken away independent media in, in Russia. People who don't agree with him suddenly catch colds that are fatal or they fall out of windows while they're cleaning them. This this kind of luck is going on. Like, I mean, you know, um, and, and that's just within, within Russia. But he has had influence on every man, woman, child, cat, dog in the world. You know, we've got problems with the supply chain. Uh, flight paths, of course, have completely changed because nobody can fly over Ukraine anymore, uh, which is pushing up the price of uh, flights. You've got instability in the stock markets all year because of that. Uh, inflation. I mean, as we speak, we're all kind of looking at the radiators going, oh my God, how much is it going to cost us? You know, we're kind of thinking about like, you know, with our, our you know, supermarket prices have all shot up during the year. Do you know what I mean? One guy has done this for everybody. So, you know, kind of for the person of the year, I'm going to put it down as the most influential person of the year. Um and, and and he's my man. Well, there's an interesting point in technology when you raise Putin, because as we've discovered, the Russian army is not an effective battlefield unit. Their military strategy is the, uh, the Zap-Brannigan method. Just throw as many people at a problem as possible and eventually you'll kill enough people on the other side, regardless of how many people you've lost on your mm. own. Um, whereas what we found in the Ukrainian army is the very smart use of technology, the use of telecommunications, um, the use of, you know, crowdfunding intelligence, things that 
just aren't cultural norms in mm. Russia. And we are finding that a much, much smaller country in Ukraine with a much, much smaller military, with a much, much better equipped and trained fighting force can, you know, succeed against kind of old military mm. uh, styles of management and tactics, which have been ingrained in Russia, thanks to its political and military structures. So I, I think you're right. Uh, I think um, from from political perspective, but also from um, from a technological perspective, but that also reflects well on uh, Vladimir Zelensky, who embraced technology and is certainly benefiting from Starlink broadband, you know, the backbone of Ukraine's tele- telecommunications, uh, related to said person that we're not talking about, uh, and yeah, I think the technology element that is playing out in the war in Ukraine, um, technically since 2014, uh, has been really, really telling uh, this year. And, you know, Russia is losing the information battle. They're losing the telecommunications battle. If you've ever heard any of the intercepted uh, phone calls uh, on unsecured cellular networks. Uh, basically, Russian soldiers are going to the front lines with their own mobile phones that are using roaming <laughs> and are heads being intercepted by commercial uh, Ukrainian uh, mobile phone towers. Um, so, you know, they're getting to listen in to just what people are talking about. Uh, and generally, they're not very happy. So, yeah, for reasons of not investing. But then again, at, before the war, you had the cyber attacks coming from Russia on their the other, you know, commercial communications companies. So they seem to have the cyber warfare piece down pat in the early stages. But everything else true. is very old school. Yeah, there there what was the wiper attacks on um, uh, Ukrainian energy companies, which weren't successful, uh, thankfully. But they, they have certainly uh, been... Acting the maggot, I guess. Uh, certainly in uh, breaking news today was that uh, an energy company in an unnamed NATO country has been hit with a cyber attack. Um, not quite sure what the extent of it is just yet. But yeah, that, that is a really interesting contrast. All right. Just mm. to to have a, a fairly effective and prolific um, cyber operation just not complemented by the military structure is is kind of fascinating. I think it's amazing, Niall, that, uh, you know, for whatever reason, I brought in Vladimir Putin, but you've turned it around into a tech conversation. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's quite amazing. Kara, uh, I was going to ask you then, seeing as we are talking about tech and, and Ukraine and Russia and stuff like that, I mean, data centres is your thing. How, how do you think Ukraine are even managing data centres or are they? I don't know, but I haven't seen a single report that, or I haven't read one anyway that says a data centre has been hit. That's amazing. And that kind of really surprises me, right? Because we've seen lots of very targeted attacks on the energy grid. So are the data centers gone dark? Or are they that secret in that secretive location that they aren't spotted? But it makes no sense to me. So if you can target power stations and you can target grid infrastructure with quite precise accuracy, how come the data centers aren't being targeted? Or are we not hearing reports on them? Because Communications are staying up somehow. We we know, you know, Elon Musk that we're not talking about. He did provide access to the Starlink communications um, free of charge for a very long time before he said, actually, you've got to start paying for this. <laughs> but, you know, so that kept things going, kept mm. communications going. 
I'm surprised we haven't seen any reports about their data center infrastructure. It's it's fascinating when you look at the two different sides then as well, because like the internet, from my understanding, because it was in the 60s when they developed it, um, and it was designed so that even if there was a war, that you couldn't actually take out the internet. And here we are with a war and... Putin is shutting down media centres left, right and centre and, and technology and methods of communication and, and Twitter and, and whatever else and disrupting all kinds of communications where uh, Ukraine obviously aren't. It's, uh, it's, it's quite interesting. There was a TV show on during the week or not during the week, during the year. I don't know if you saw it. What The Undeclared War. Did either of you see it? Nope. No. Fascinating uh, TV series. Uh, basically, it's set in, you know, a time not too distant, all right, um, where analysts who are working in GCHQ in, in the UK are warding off foreign cyber attacks. And the whole point of the cyber attacks is to spread disinformation in the UK, which will get the population uh, rising up in arms and uh, throwing off their, their current government. And it's kind of like, <laughs> watch it, right? Because I know it's... Okay. It's complete fiction, all right? Simon Pegg is in it, all right? It's complete fiction. But when you think about what's happened this year, you go, oh, my God. <laughs> and the whole idea was that, you know, whoever the, I think it was Russians uh, at the other side, was that they could start a war without actually declaring a war. It's unbelievable. Like, you know, the, the era we're living in at the moment. Yeah, there, there, There's been a few examples of that kind of too close for comfort fiction in, in recent times. I mean, uh, if you've read um, It Couldn't Happen Here, uh, which was about the uh, rise of a potential fascist state in America, um, that was very, very scary uh, and, you know, emblematic of the last, what, five years during, during the Trump administration. Mm. Um, there was also on Netflix, if you saw the film Contagion, uh, which was very, very close for comfort in its um, uh, analysis or, or just depiction, depiction of COVID. Yes. Depiction of any sort of virus spread uh, all the way down to misinformation being spread by bloggers. Um, that was a very, very scary movie um, considering what we've been through over the last few years. So, you mm. know, fiction does does get too close for comfort. Yeah. Dare, dare I mention the, the certain uh, Mr. T of US fame who's not part of the A-team. So if we look at the truth platform in the US and Mr. Trump, you know, so how far are you going to, is that misinformation battle um, very futuristic or is it real? It's it's kind of telling people what they want to hear. Um, and I think there, that's always been sort of a, a, a thread in fiction. If you look at any sort of dystopia, there's a, they all require a huge amount of buy-in from the population. And there was um, an updating of Fahrenheit 451 that went out in the States as a, a TV movie, I think it was, uh, in the last few years. And they really played up the social media element of it. I mean, everything that that happened, you know, book burnings or whatever, you know, it, it looked like it was streamed on TikTok with, you know, hearts and emojis flying up, up both sides of the screen. So, um, yeah, these things require a massive amount of buy-in uh, and maybe social media platforms, seeing as they don't really consider themselves publishers, uh, hopefully that will change in the next few years, um, seem to be the place where, where this sort of discussion is playing out. Wow, I never thought that my 
nomination for Vladimir Putin would, would strike off a conversation like that. But that's that's the brilliant thing about podcasts, uh, be, being able to do that. So uh, listen, let's move on to story of the year. Cara, what are you nominating as the story of 2022? <laughs> I think this is the year that AI started doing the work for us in a way that we actually wanted it to. So what I mean is we've now seen developments with the GPT-3 platform chat where we can actually, in a self-service way, and I mean the non-data scientists part of the community, so as in most of us, um, get some help from an AI solution with no, with no training, as in very usable. So what do I mean? Um, there's been a whole revolution in AI for me as a day-to-day kind of person this year where you can ask AI solutions to make things, create things for us. So in the summertime, this kicked off for me when I suddenly became an artist. Now, I'm saying this in the loosest terms, but um, where I discovered apps and solutions where I could put in a string of words and an AI engine would create a piece of artwork for me. Now, it's not the same as someone who's actually a real artist, but there are AI technologies like generalized adversarial networks who can create pieces of art. And I wanted to make an image for um, blockchains and crypto coins. And I couldn't find anything online that wasn't um, either already heavily used or hadn't been or just wasn't great. So I used an AI engine to go and create me a piece of art that I could then go and use in subsequent presentations. And it's it's very easy to do once you figure out the right kind of string of words. So then thought, okay, well, how can businesses use this? And the same technology can now be used to start to make creative content, whether that's for kicking off, you know, some wording for a marketing campaign trying to find out some information about some products or some features and so on. Um, I was showing it to a set of colleagues yesterday and they're saying, well, put in, put in uh, a query. So give me examples where someone has used a certain type of technology. And it kind of goes off and pulls the internet, but it's not the current internet, has to say. So the OpenAI platform right now has kind of got machine learning built up to 2021. So it can tell you up to 2021, but we tried to make it predict the future last night. We said, will it be a right Christmas? They said, I can't tell you. I could tell you about, you know, Christmas 2020, but (laughs) not that far back. Um, But where I think this is really interesting is that we've now got ways that we can ask AI engines to create some content, including even computer code like Java code and Python code and so on. And for me, one of the things we need to consider is while this is really interesting and helpful to get us started. So if you're faced with a blank page and you don't know where to start, um, you can use these kinds of tools. But A, you don't know who else is going to use exactly the same tools. So beware of having exactly the same as everybody else. So retain your uniqueness from a personal level. From a corporate level, though, we're really interested in the idea of explainable AI. So how do you know how an AI solution has come to the results it's presenting you. And there are different techniques that can be used on that relating to what kind of features the the AI engine has deemed important, what kind of decision trees it's used, what rules are based in. There are other techniques called something very wordy, like local interpretable model agnostic explanations, which means our line for short, because you always need a good acronym. But the point is with AI solutions, when we're looking at them, is to have them uh, built with explainability by default. So when we're, you know, it's going to be a whole heap of work done in the next year 
or two about um, regulations in terms of risks from AI systems and so on and categorization of AI-based systems. And that's where I think the whole idea of explainability is really important and understanding that if any or if you're buying an AI system from an organization or going to use an AI-based system, ask them how explainable it is so that if you do want to question a result, whatever you've put into it, that you can backtrack through it and see how it got to the result. So yeah, it's a it's an area that continues to evolve fast, definitely this year, being able to search information, get answers back in natural language and not just a whole heap of links. So not like your normal browser search. That's been really, really helpful and really interesting. AI is quite interesting in that it yeah, it seems to be one of the terms of the year without a doubt. And everybody seems to be talking about uh, AI and stuff like that. But a friend of mine or a guy that I was interviewing during the week and he was brilliant. He goes, AI is just AI until they start calling it Google Maps or Google Translate or whatever. Do you know what I mean? But no, but what I mean is, is like when you have a use for it, well, then that, that's that's what you do. So we have all of these smart speakers, OK, which drives me nuts, as Niall knows, because, you know, they're just incredibly bloody dumb. Um, uh, there's a radio station that I listen to from abroad, but it doesn't understand what I'm saying because it's not in English. Do you know what I mean? So I thought you were a smart speaker. Like, you know, it's, ah, they drive me nuts. Um, do you think that uh, we're going to see more AI uh, coming through on the on those smart speakers? Um, I would hope that they're starting to build in language translation models to address your kind of query because there are lots of engines out there with translations built in. Um, question is really how far would you want it to go? So do you want to say to your smart, smart speaker, should I travel to, I don't know, and scary next Friday or would Thursday be better? So how much, how detailed a question do you want to put yeah. into your well, there, there's another thing of like AI with Google Maps and it'll say, where are you going and what, what time do you want to travel on and what day? And it will look back at all the historical information. We don't think of that as AI anymore. It's just Fantasies. Google Maps, like, you know, it's uh, it's good. Uh, let me ask you as well about the open AI that everybody's talking about as well uh, this year. It sounds amazing. It sounds like the kind of thing where you, you can literally ask it anything. Do you know what it reminds me of? It, it reminds me of Deep Thought from uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, you can ask it anything, but you said that it, the information only goes up to 2021? So that's what that's how far the learning models were based so far. Ah. So we will keep learning. So for example, we, we saw a really interesting use case recently where on the ethical hacking side of cybersecurity, uh, one of the guys wanted to create a penetration test and he was going to design a phishing campaign to see how regularly, how easily people were fooled in an organization to clicking on a suspicious link. So he used the OpenAI platform to say, write a mail to convince somebody to open a, a, a link. And it created a, an email template that was very benign. And they said, oh no, it's too benign. Make it really suspicious. And the same engine came back because it re remembers what it did last time. And it included some things you, like you could click on this link, but it might be dodgy <laughs> kind of wording. And they said, no, just dial it back a bit and, you know, we'll come back with another iteration. So rather than the, the guy designing the penetration test, having to creatively think how to write the email, he could get the engine to do it for him and refine it. So it kind of got him away from that blank sheet moment. 
So it's it's going to be really interesting. Um, and then when I talk to, let's say, younger members in the house, they're kind of going, oh, I can do my homework on it. I can get it to answer my question on, I don't know, how many bones are in this, how many bones are in my skeleton or what happened with the spare rib or whatever it is. And, you know, that might be all well and good for a bit of study. But if um, if you're supposed to be producing work that's unique, this can't be, this isn't unique. This is just mm. searching from a large set of data and using natural language processing modules to make it in a coherent fashion. Be able to put it together and, and to try and get yeah. the context right. Uh, one last question then on AI. Um, and and Niall, I'm sure we'll want to jump in on, on this in a second. Uh, but I live my life through movies. I've mentioned Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, think of Terminator, okay, uh, where the machines all became self-aware and were able to think of themselves and they were able to build other machines, which then went, these humans are useless. All right. You've spoken about that. You've said that this AI is able to take one or two lines of code and it's able to write an entire program. How close are we to annihilation? We're, I think we're still a little way off, but it's getting closer every day, right? So, yeah, the, <laughs> these engines were building code and I was showing it to some colleagues yesterday and I said, well, tell me what you want to solve in a piece of code. They said, this is what I want to solve. So I said, I wrote it in normal piece person language and it produced back the set of JavaScript and they thought, well, actually, that's not bad. Wow. So now we can create coding through, you know, normal person language. We need a better term for normal person language. But... <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh, look, they're getting closer and there's a, we need, with the complexity in our IT landscapes, we we need systems that can take away some of the headaches and some of the work for us, yeah. you know, by deciding what kind of alerts to respond to. Of all our IT devices, they're all pinging back alerts all the time. So mm. rather than sifting through hundreds and thousands of alerts in an IT environment every day, you need to know which ones are important. And that's where you want these kinds of systems to say, that one's important but discard this other 990,000. So but, it's it's a balancing act, but are we getting closer to the machines taking over every day? <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Listen, let's move on to Niall and uh, story of the year for you, Niall. You've alluded to it already. Let's dive in. I've alluded to it already because we have a figurehead for it. So let's let's do a slightly deeper dive into, into what's happening. And it has been process that lasted the entire year. I mean, by December, we had somebody that we could point to and go, yes, you are the poster boy for what has been happening. Um, but of course, I'm talking about the crypto winter. And we had some great conversations about this during the year. And indeed, uh, Rachel Pether uh, spoke with us, I think, uh, around August time, giving a, a sort of a, a breakdown of it in the context of the breakdown of the Terra Lua, Terra Luna um, uh, cryptocurrency, which was uh, basically a, a $60 billion write-off, uh, the biggest cryptocurrency calamity or crisis up to up to that point. And kind of an example of a lot of people putting money into crypto, expecting to get more back, uh, but not understanding that the value of a currency uh, fluctuates and that it's not a simple pump and dump. I mean, if you look at the value of Bitcoin, uh, December, uh, sorry, January 1st of this year, a single Bitcoin would cost you nearly 42,000 euro. In December, it'll cost you just shy of 16. 
Dusty, you had your own threshold. I think you were looking at, what, 12 or 11 at which you'd... 15, actually. 15, at which you buy yeah. in. So it's, it's a good, it's almost there for you, you know, uh, if, you were, if you were so inclined. And there's plenty of reasons for why that we were heading for this sort of, uh, for the crypto winter. And not all of them were nefarious. I mean, sort of the, the collapse of, you know, Terra Luna was absolutely huge. It led in turn to the collapse of the Voyager exchange, the uh, crypto lending platform Celsius, um, Three Arrows Capital, of course, an, an, an investment company, also uh, died as a result of um, Terra Luna going under. And what was interesting about Terra Luna was that it was meant to be a stable coin that was pegged to the value of the dollar, but also managed by an algorithm. Unfortunately, what happened was that there was basically a flaw in the system was exposed, which meant that you could end up selling crypto or rather buying crypto for less than a dollar, which was meant to be sort of the base value. It would never go below a dollar. Uh, and as a result, there was a massive dumping of uh, crypto on the market. Uh, the value um, of said peg went below a dollar and it basically led to, you know, and what was effectively a Ponzi scheme, the whole thing collapsing, um, leading to this 60 billion hole in, um, in crypto. However, there are uh, reasonable arguments for why we were heading for a crypto winter anyway, regardless of the likes of FTX going under, regardless of the likes of Terra Luna going under. Um, first of all, there was sort of the increasing interest from governments. Uh, for example, a lot of people were going, okay, regulation is completely anathema to cryptocurrencies. We should resist it with everything. If there's, you know, a sign of regulation on the horizon, we should just mint another crypto and uh, go in a different direction. Um, that has not been good for cryptocurrency. Uh, however, an awful lot of banks and countries are now dabbling in crypto to have a look at, okay, well, what are the benefits here? Yep, cross-border transfers without interest in exchange rates. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. Uh, let's, let's have a look at that. Anonymity of transactions. Well, maybe not just for money launderers, but let's, let's have a look at that as well. Um, of course, there was uh, the overall cost of living going up, which we've discussed about in the in the war of Ukraine. We've still got the hangover in logistics from China and COVID. We've got rising energy prices uh, as a result of the conflict in Ukraine. Got natural uh, rise in the cost of living in general. We've got the disparity uh, in wages between people at the very top and people at the very bottom. Uh, and of course, all of which contributing to general inflation. So all of a sudden you've got an awful lot less money out there for people to start experimenting with investments. If somebody wants to invest in something, they're not going to go, well, crypto, let's try that. They're going to go gold or the dollar or something very stable that you actually understand how it works. Uh, if you have to do a course on understanding crypto before putting a lot of money into it, um, it's not a it's not a good investment for you. If you understand crypto and you understand the risks, well, okay. But a lot of people out there that were seeing the value of Bitcoin going up and up and up, we're looking at those figures and going, great, cannot lose. Uh, unfortunately, when you have a currency that just isn't isn't being used, um, and you've got people just using their spare money to invest in it, uh, it's it's not a good time. This is this is not a. 
it's 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 not a good investment for you. So there has been that flight to quality, you know, people investing in things they know and understand. Uh, and of course, we've mentioned stable coins uh, there already in, in Terra Luna. Probably the best of both worlds. You know, we do like digital currencies. We do like stability. Why don't we have more of those? Uh, unfortunately, Facebook uh, this year decided that they were going to ditch their own uh, version of the stable currency uh, and more importantly, their own digital wallet, uh, which was called Novi, finally got finally got canned this year. So uh, and of course, we also had he who must not be named uh, come out and say, crypto, I never said you should buy into it. I just said it was interesting. <laughs> well, there you go. After championing a very fringe uh, crypto for a long time. Um, Cara, you're you're quite up on uh, crypto. Um, I suppose we we all are, uh, but you're you, you'd be more professionally up on crypto than I think I would be. Uh, what do you think of what Nad is saying? Yeah, well, for for me, we we see the cryptocurrencies angle, and I've been thinking a lot this year about when corporate companies are going to start accepting cryptocurrency payments from their customers, or even see demand from end customers to pay in cryptocurrencies. Now, I think the the bear market that we're in has taken a lot of steam out of the market. And then I was looking as well to see was, were there any of the big ERP platforms actually starting to build in mechanisms to integrate with crypto exchanges? Because if, a, if your end users start asking to pay in cryptocurrencies, the big ERP platforms are going to have to integrate to crypto exchanges to be able to, you know, transact on it and and also to manage all the volatility. So let's talk integrations to crypto exchanges first. And um, they're going to have to be very careful which ones they pick, obviously not FTX. Um, but, you know, there will have to be some leaders in the crypto exchanges world Mm. And we'll need integrations with them. And then we're also going to need platforms to manage the volatility. So we have uh, work with, not this scenario particularly, but would be applicable in managing, you know, very volatile um, computations for customers. So when to sell, when to buy, what's the right balance of maybe 100, 200 parameters to decide, you know, if they do accept crypto payments, when to turn them into stable coins. And, mm. and not in fiat currencies. Um, the only big move I've seen this year in terms of, let's say, enterprise applications in the, let's say, the crypto space is Oracle's NetSuite. And what Oracle's NetSuite did this year was they released a platform to manage digital assets. So I know I mentioned NFTs briefly earlier. What seems to have been a gap in the market is we don't have solutions out there to particularly manage digital assets. We're used to hardware assets and software assets, but digital assets seems to be a new class of inventory, for want of a better word, or asset that may need to be managed a bit differently. And Oracle NetSuite came to market with that. So we're not seeing much demand in the market yet. And I think the bear bear market and the, the new crypto winter is going to slow things down. But I don't think crypto is going away either as a solution. So it, I think time time will come if we get to the point of having some very stable cryptocurrencies that aren't very volatile, then cost, then businesses may be more prepared to take the risk to accept payments from their customers in cryptocurrencies. And then that'll drive a whole new wave of innovation. 
I think it will. Do you know, the way I see kind of the crypto space at the moment is it's like a teenager. You know, it's kind of, it's come through its little, I'm learning to walk and talk and all that kind of stuff. And now it's just being an annoying little <laughs> whatever, as it's trying to break all the rules and whatever. And it'll eventually come around. And I, I think, Carrie, you're right that it, it will become part of life. I think there's um, certain advantages to a digital currency that are way over, as you say, the the regular fiat. Uh, just very quickly, now looking ahead to next year, do, do you think it, there, there is a future for crypto. You're not writing it off, are you? Oh God, no. Oh, uh, okay. There absolutely is. I mean, the the core technology of blockchain is is proven. Yeah. Uh, it's you know, uh, I know uh, artists are actually using blockchain uh, to actually manage their rights mm. um, because they you know basically push in. Okay, I'm dealing with this person for royalties. I'm dealing with this person for royalties. Traditionally, something that was very difficult to manage. Uh, from people that, you know, generally aren't very good at managing them. Uh, so we are seeing an awful lot of very positive uses for blockchain. Cryptocurrency is, is, is only one of them. Mm. Uh, there are, of course, you know, countries dabbling in uh, crypto. Uh, India, of course, started their uh, experiment crypto this year. Uh, Ukraine actually has an ongoing project with crypto, which is quite interesting. The EU is about to start a crypto project. Um, not, I'm sure it won't quite be the same as a digital mm. euro, but uh, it certainly ties in with their uh, Digital Markets Act, uh, which uh, I'm very enthused about, uh, almost as much as the uh, Digital Market Service Act, uh, which will finally put some manners on social networks. Quite looking forward to seeing how that pans out in 2024. Um, so, you know, as you say, uh, crypto is a teenager, but there's plenty of um, there's plenty of official projects out there showing that, you know, the concept has landed. So, yeah, we're going to see a lot more of it. All right. Well, listen, let's go from crypto space to space. Ah, uh, Because my story of the year, yeah, yeah, I know. You, you love it. I'm a genius. I'm a genius. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> my story of the year is, I would have thought, highly unlikely, Ireland in space. All right. Um, not a lot of people know that Ireland has actually been part of the European Space Agency since like 1975, decades and decades and decades. Uh, and every year the ESA is, uh, the European Space Agency is, is placing contracts and funding with Irish companies who are doing exciting things in space. Take a guess at how many Irish companies are getting funding from ESA to do stuff on space related projects. Throw me a number. Hmm. I'm, I'm going to say about a dozen due to lack of awareness that companies can do it. Cara, how many? I'm, I'm going 50 because I'm going everything from advanced materials through to airs at one. Okay, uh, 94 this year alone have taken a share of 20 million in various contracts and uh, funding. Uh, Railtra Space Systems Engineering are one of them. Um, the Ariane 5 rocket, which is uh, launching satellites into, into space, um, they have designed the video system for that. Believe it or not, the you know, the Americans all have these videos every time a, a rocket takes off and you can see the ground disappearing into in, into nothing. We don't have that in the EU yet. So uh, Railtra Space Systems have done that for the Ariane five rocket. Uh, there's a company called Mindseed and another one called Ocean Energy. They got funding to investigate satellite services uh, to use the renewable marine energy industry. And then Davra Networks are working on satellite-based life-saving location service to track patients, which is a little bit like what Apple announced this year, where you have the emergency service and you're able to 
being up on a satellite, except I think with this is the satellite will look down on your granny. <laughs> and if she falls, <laughs> it'll automatically send an ambulance around or, or something like that. So there's all that kind of going on. But I think the big story far and away is uh, an Irish woman has been announced to be part of a crew that is going to go not only into space, not only around orbit, but is going to fly to the moon, like the song would say, fly me to the moon, uh, and then back again, not actually landing on it. It's a part of um, a SpaceX moon flyby, which is being funded by a Japanese billionaire. All right. One guy. Amazing. A talking about how, how much one person can do. This Japanese billionaire has decided to take a SpaceX moon flight and crew it with himself and artists and creatives to go on the trip. <laughs> and it made me smile because the same the route for the trip, all right, according to Google Space Maps, is the same route that Apollo 13 took. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear I think it'll work out fine but uh, there is an Irish lady who's going on that and of course I think kind of in typical fashion do you know how annoying it is when uh, when you've got an Irish football player or something like that and then Sky News will go English footballer blah 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 because he plays for an Irish team well this lady is uh, Rhiannon Adam uh, is her name she was born in Cork and she's lived in London for God knows how long. All right. But uh, she's definitely of Irish heritage. She is going to be going up uh, along with uh, record producers going up as well. Uh, there's a rapper going up. There's a TV actor. There's a, a documentary maker. I can understand the uh, uh, the thinking behind that. But Rhiannon Adam is going to be the first genuine Irish born person to actually go up into space, which is going to annoy the hell of Nora Patton. All right. Who is from Mayo. And for years, her dream has been to be to go up into space, whether she wants to be the first Irish woman to do so or not, it is irrelevant. Um, and at one stage she was an ESA astronaut candidate and is now an ambassador for such things, but she hasn't quite made it uh, out of orbit just yet. So I think that's one of the big stories of the year. And then also continuing with Ireland in space, there's more. And you mentioned it, Cara, and that's uh, AirSat 1 which is uh, AirSat is nothing to do with the telephone company. It stands for Educational Irish Research Satellite. And they're developing this in uh, in in UCD, which I think is brilliant um, because what they've done is they've developed this kind of a, a two unit size box. It's not huge, but it's going up in the Ariane 5 in spring. And we'll be able to see the launch thanks to an Irish based camera system. Ta-da! <laughs> We're taking over. Um and it's going to do three experiments in low Earth orbit. Uh, one of them is going to be measure bursts uh, from the most violent explosions in the universe. However, they're able to track that. Uh, then they're going to test thermal uh, coats, which are developed by an Irish company as well. And then they're going to try out software to control the movement of the satellite and stuff like that. But I just think it's... Um, I think it's amazing that people who are studying at UCD are able to actually build something and play around with it and then lob it up into space to see to see if it happens. Do you, do you know much about that project, uh, Cara, do you? Yeah, um, I was lucky enough to uh, go to engineering in UCD. So that's where I got my engineering degree. Hmm. And one of my lectures was with Dr. Willie O'Connor, who was involved in the AirSat project in its early days pre-retirement. And Dr. O'Connor was responsible for the area of dynamics, which is probably means something different to you versus what it means to him. But it's all about stability and keeping the satellite upright when it needs to be upright or sideways if it needs to be sideways. 
And a lot of his work in those early days was, you know, the actual position of the satellite versus where it should be. Mm. <laughs> so um, I got some early insights into that. Now that's probably going back, uh, I'd say five plus years. A year, a year or two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh no, the, well, the AirSat work is more, it was way more recent versus when I left GCD. Um, but I think it's an amazing project. And imagine being in college and able to work on this. This is, it's really cool. It's like, it's not a huge yeah. device. Like you, you'd think from the size no. of it, it must be the size of a massive table, but it's, no, it's, it's a a like smaller. a foot and a half wide yeah. and a couple of inches tall and, and, and whatever. But uh, the fact they're able to do that. Uh, the other than, I think, big space story of the year that's not Ireland in space is, of course, the whole let's go to the moon again with the Americans. Uh, they had the Apollo uh, project, um, which only lasted. I mean, it's nuts, right? Three years. And they sent, I don't know how many missions to the moon. Sorry, Apollo 11 was the first one to land. Apollo 17 was the last one there in 1972. And that's... This year, that's 50 years ago. 50 years ago since we've been to the moon and we haven't been since. It's it's crazy. So they've got the new Artemis uh, scheme, which has been rocking it this year. Um, Apollo and Artemis, do you know the uh, the connection? Ah, sure. They're, they're siblings, aren't they? They are. They're the twin children of the Greek god Zeus. So the name is uh, uh, really appropriate. But uh, involved in it this time, it's not just NASA, okay? The European Space Agency is involved this time and SpaceX are involved this time around. Uh, NASA, of course, are are building the actual rocket. Then uh, the service module, which is where the, which is the bit that, if you've seen Apollo 13, you know exactly what I mean. So you've got the actual capsule, uh, which is being developed by uh, Lockheed Martin, I think it is. Uh, And then, to service the people who are in that actual um, uh, capsule, crew module, uh, you've got the service module, which is the one that has all the oxygen tanks and blah, 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 Houston Weaver problem and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and that is being developed by uh, Airbus. They're doing the uh, service module. And then for the third launch, when they get around to doing it, they've got a vehicle transferring the astronauts from the crew module down onto the surface of Earth. And that is being built by SpaceX, which of course is owned by, oh, 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 you can't mention his name. <laughs> he should not be mentioned. Uh, but I just think I've, I completely missed it. You know, I don't think any of us were around for um, the first moon landings. And I'm just so excited. I am so excited to see a man stand on the moon and watch it live. I don't care what time of day or night it is. I'm going to be, I'm going to be up and I'm going to be watching it. So that definitely for me is a, is um is story of the year. Listen, let's uh, wrap it up by looking ahead to 2023. Cara, what do you reckon is going to be the one thing you're going to look at for uh, during 2023? Yeah, so I, I'm going to be looking forward to seeing like a next wave of automations in, in our enterprise systems. We've, mm. we've had the pandemic, we've had the digitalization of processes, you know, reacting, changing business models, making sure there's businesses keep going. And along the side of it, there were always these automation tools you could bolt in, like Blue Prism and Automation Anywhere and so on. And what I've noticed is that platforms such as ServiceNow and Microsoft and Oracle and so on now have engines built into them from the inside. So they can recommend, actually, your processes might be taking, I don't know, let's say 20 days to do a particular thing, but there are ways to optimize them and do them faster. Um, So... The way this works is there's a concept called process mining software and process mining software is also now built into a lot of these tools to map how something will happen. Let's say from 
someone deciding they need a purchase order through to something eventually being invoiced. There, there's ways that that can work. So software may be standard, but you know how humans interact with the software can always be very mm. variable. And process mining will show you what's actually happening when people use these systems. And what we're finding is that automation might make some things easier, but um, having automation software built in and recommendation engines, which are, of course, based on machine learning, sometimes called AI, but it's really machine learning, um, they can actually recommend if you do the steps in this order consistently, it's going to work faster and smoother for you. Um, ServiceNow themselves call this hyper-automation is the, the term that they've used. And Gartner defines this as, so there's a natural Gartner-defined term now called hyper-automation. They define it as an effective combination of complementary sets of tools that can integrate functional and process silos to automate and augment business processes. So we're not trying to create anything new here. We're just trying to work more efficiently um, and essentially help companies and people doing things day in, day out, find information easier, get self-service easier and so on. And the thing is, any of this work needs to be understood as, you know, it's human centric, it's driven by people. And we never, one of the things that I'm very keen of is that you don't do anything with technology for technology's sake. You do it because it's going to make people's life easier. Um, and where we've seen some of the use cases and results in this is, for example, we've seen pharmaceutical companies automating their invo invoice processing and what that meant was they actually reduced their manual data input by 75% just by having these tools learn what kind of information needs to go in. Like, that's huge, right? Wow, that is amazing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've seen telecoms operations um, automate the provisioning for their service orders and um, speeding those up 50% in mm. terms of manual entry. And banks putting in automations for onboarding new employees that, of course, improves employee experience and improves HR workload. So, you know, we often hear these terms, you know, we need to improve customer experience, we need to improve employee experience and so on. And it's it's about finding the tools and techniques to do this. So what I'm going to be looking at for is very much how companies start to embrace the automation capabilities of the tools that they've already invested in and making sure that happens. Grant, and Niall, what are you looking forward to in 2023? What are you going to be watching out for? Uh, yeah, I'm going to be looking at the outcome of a particular merger, which hopefully won't happen because, as we know, um, mergers can be very positive for, you know, shareholders and occasionally innovation. But consolidation of markets is very bad for innovation and fostering new talent and new ideas. Uh, one of the big deals up for consideration at the moment is the merger of Microsoft with Activision and Blizzard, who between them pretty much, you know, uh, it would be an absolutely huge deal for Microsoft. Microsoft have a very interesting history with gaming, of course. Um, you know, they, they had Bungie and Halo and all that sort of thing uh, and uh, uh, hundreds of other titles. Activision, a huge gaming heritage as well. And Blizzard, of course, well, well known for World of Warcraft. Uh, between the three of them, this could effectively, I'm not going to say corner the gaming market, but certainly corner the talent for the gaming market. Uh, and it's not great news for indie developers either because uh, it just, uh, when you're dealing with AAA titles with huge marketing budgets as it is, uh, it's very hard to find your voice and to find a, an appropriate distribution platform. When you have a very large company effectively acting as gatekeepers 
for the kind of skills they want to see in the market, possibly the kind of games that they want to see on the market as well. And if Microsoft issues an edict tomorrow saying, okay, we want all our games to be PG rated, that's it. Um, that's an awful lot of titles on the market that are end up, they're going, they're going to have to adhere to some sort of style guide, if you will, which is not good. It's not good for innovation. It's not good for kind of stories that are being told. It's not good for the development of gaming as a medium. And uh, however, I'm very confident that the merger will be blocked uh, very much on those grounds that if you have an entity that's too large in the market, it does end up stifling innovation. Uh, so that is a deal I'm looking forward to seeing not go through. All right. Well, listen, let's wrap up our look at uh, 2022 and a quick look forward to 2023 there. I think in summary, uh, Cara, very much about AI, uh, Niall all about crypto. And then I have a fascination with Russian dictators and I want to get off the planet as a result. So there we go. Listen, that is it for our look back at 2022 and on into 2023. Cara O'Carroll and Niall Kisson, thank you as always for joining us. And thank you to you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the last hour or so. That's it for our show this week. And for this year, do remember that you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland throughout 2023 with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website, techcentral.ie. And of course, you can catch us each week online as a podcast or Fridays on RTE Radio 1 Extra as a good old fashioned radio show. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, from Niall Kitson and from Cara O'Carroll, thank you very much for joining us. Take care. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com Tech Central